Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. My name is Known Wells. I am the creator of this show. I'm also the founder of the Feely Human Collective, where we, you and I, and all of us together, deepen and grow our collective capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional curiosity. You can learn more all about that at feelyhuman.co. This is episode 223 on how intersectionality deepens our connection to self and community with my guest, Nicola Pierre-Smith. Nicola and I explore the crucial components of a healing conversation, why it's easier to listen to our bodies when we're hungry, but not our emotions when we're feeling, how Nicola is creating space for BIPOC communities to heal, and how mindfulness about our intersectionality can deepen our connection to ourselves and our communities. Really loved this conversation. Really cherish and appreciate Nicola and the work that she is doing in the world. Before we get to the episode, a couple of things. One being that there's two weeks left in the Dear Childhood Me journal presale. So if you haven't purchased, or even if you have and you want to share it with friends, family members, communities, etc., uh, you can. It ends on May 4th. If you go to dearchildhoodme.com, it's a journal about deepening our connection to self. It's about inner child, and it's filled with love notes to uh, our inner children or inner child, and uh, it's called Dear Child and Me, and it's a labor of love, and I hope that you love it too. Um, if you haven't purchased, please go check out dearchildhoodme.com. Again, the pre-sale ends May 4th, meaning it's it goes away after that. It goes away after May 4th. If you order between now and May 4th, you get a bonus download of Inner Child Prompts as well as a personalized letter from me. So you can go check that out at dearchildhoodme.com. That link is also in the show notes. The other thing I wanted to mention is just uh, being real with you. Um, so... My partner, Jessica, and I have been uh, experiencing some stress and some sleepless nights because our dogs have been uh, just diarrheing and uh, diarrheing. That's not a word, but I'm going to make it a word uh, and vomiting just constantly. And uh, they, they seem to be taking turns. And so we've been uh, like racking our brains, like what can they find in the yard? Like what is happening here? So what we found is that our neighbors have this mulberry tree and they could potentially be eating the berries that fall into our yard. And uh, Jessica told me this morning after doing a little research that mulberries, in fact, are potentially hallucinogenic. So our dogs have been going on ayahuasca trips for, for like a month and uh, wild. I mean, they must be having a, a, a wild, wonderful time, but we're not. And so I created this little makeshift gate to kind of keep them away from that area for the time being. Uh, but it's just a lot. Uh, you know, when when dogs are pooping and in the middle of the night you get up and you accidentally step in poop and then you walk inside the house and there's poop in your house. Oh, gosh. Shout out to all the parents out there shout out to all of the dog owners out there pet owners out there uh my 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 empathy goes to you my heart goes to you <laughs> i'm just feeling a lot with it and uh i love them and uh they're making me a little nutty so 
just wanted to share that. Not sure why, just being a little vulnerable, I guess, and sharing what's going on in my world. Uh, the other exciting thing in my world is that we just uh, launched our Airbnb, which is super exciting. Um, and it's we've already had two guests. It's been only like 10 days since it's been live, and we've already had two guests. We're pretty booked in May and June and even into July, which is bonkers to me. It's it's really special, and that's been helping on the financial front because, as some of you know, I, I don't have a day job anymore. I left my day job you know, under some hard... Uh, conditions. And so um, this has been helping. The Airbnb has been helping with the finances. Any hoozles. Let's get to the episode. That's why you're here. You're not here to hear me talk about dog diarrhea and Airbnbs. You're here to listen to the wonderful Nicola Pierre Smith about intersectionality and how it deepens our connection to self and community. Enjoy. You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm honored to be here with a therapist and founder of Melanated Women's Health, a culturally affirming an anti-oppressive therapy space for the marginalized. It's Nicola Pierre-Smith. Hello, Nicola. Hi, Noun. Thank you for having me. I am happy to be here. Oh, my goodness. So happy to have you here. We always start, Nicola, with an emotional check-in. How are you feeling? So I must admit, I'm feeling maybe mildly anxious and I did some preparatory work before so I can trace what that's coming from in that voice isn't necessarily my strong suit it's mostly written words Mm. so um you know falling into that anxiety and the discomfort and seeing what comes of it (laughs) I relate to that um and and you know good on you to investigate uh good on you to explore it and be curious about it um the curiosity part i find in my experience is is sometimes well it's uncomfortable right sometimes a little scary yeah and oftentimes what i like to tell people even in my own work is that if we repress or ignore or deny or avoid the feelings they essentially just metastasize into something bigger or more scary. And the analogy I often give, it's the feeling of hunger. We don't Mm. judge that. We don't demean it. We investigate it. And then we provide ourselves with what we need to dissipate that feeling of hunger that can be uncomfortable. Yeah. I love that analogy because, I mean, really, we all can relate to that hunger, right? We all eat Mm -hmm. as humans. We have to eat to survive. Uh, And we also have to address the the foundation of our mental health to survive, right? We have to address the emotions that we all have, right? We all have mental health. I think uh, as much as culturally and societally, we deny that sometimes. 
the truth is that we all have mental health, right? Yeah. And as humans, we have emotions. That's essentially what makes us humans. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, I have had a sinus headache for nearly two weeks, Nicola. And oh. it's like, I, I've, I, I'm someone who has allergies. I, it happens, but like, it's, I mean, I, it's made me really think about the people who I know and people who I've met in my life who have ongoing like headaches or migraine issues. Like, I can't, like, it's been so frustrating and annoying. Have you ever had any uh, chronic headache issues? Not chronic headache, but sometimes I'll have back pains. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the same. I think about people who have maybe more chronic pain issues that not realizing how that physical health impairment or issue then affects your mental health. You're cranky, you're irritable. Um, it's difficult to engage in conversations or in your relationships because of this physical health issue. Totally, totally. Let's talk a little bit about the that thing we do and can do and have the capacity for as humans to feel, oh, I have this thing you know, this example being, I have this headache, and then sort of in my imagination, in my emotions, in my head, I can say, well, um, other people may have had this, right? And how can I bridge the gap between me and that person cognitively, emotionally, empathetically, compassionately? How do you think about that stuff as a therapist, as a human in the space, as a human in the world? Like, like for me, it's sort of an ongoing thing I think about often. Is that is that something that occupies your heart and your brain? I'd imagine, yes, as a therapist, but sorry, many questions there. Thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, and as you were speaking, the first thing that came to mind was compassion. Mm -hmm. In that if we're unable to have compassion for ourselves, it's going to be tremendously difficult to have genuine compassion for others because if we're not compassionate towards ourselves and we think we're displaying compassion to others and their emotional suffering i think it's more intellectualized mm -hmm. and it's an intellectual compassion that we're given like oh it's polite to mm. act in this way as a human versus genuinely compassionate because we can provide that to mm -hmm. ourselves mm -hmm. Well said. Uh, it's the foundation. We have to go inward before we go outward. Um, exactly. I love that. Yeah. Do you, how would you describe your sort of journey with self compassion? Was that hard for you to get there? Was it, um, you know, did you have a moment that sort of sticks out in your memory as being like, this is when my self compassion journey started, you know? Yeah, it, it happened gradually, and it definitely was not an easy process. Of course, with my education and training, that helped as I got older, being exposed to psychological concepts. But culturally, I'm not sure if I shared this with you, known or even on social media, I don't tend to necessarily talk too much about myself. I have it be a general mm -hmm. conversation in that as a Jamaican, um, emphasis isn't necessarily placed on compassion and emotions. It's mm -hmm. more focused on strength, resiliency, being hard, toughening up. And it's because culturally what the country has had to endure yeah. and issues that continue to plague the nation. So growing up, I wasn't in a home where I love you. And I'm so proud of you. And those words were said. It was more sometimes viewed in action mm. that you're saying like, oh, I guess they love me. Mm -hmm. And I think they're proud. So I'll go with that. But um, I remember this moment in grad school when a friend of mine said, oh, Nicola, you use words like excellent and great and proud. I'm like, 
I did not used to use those words. They were not in my vocabulary. It happened over time as friends expressed that, like, I love this for you. I love you. I love our friendship. I'm so proud of you. You're so kind. And it's um, essentially the unlearning of language and affirmation and uh, reinforcing kindness within friend groups mm. that really helped me build my own compassion. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, this shared humanity. What I hear often on this show, Nicola, is, is this I mean, certainly there's a lot of intersectionality at play, you know, a Jamaican culture, uh, you know, black, indigenous, gender. gender, you know, all of it, right? Um, but the shared humanity of like, certainly people of my generation raised in environments where emotions were not a thing, right? We just didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about mental health. Like it was just... Um, shame-based it was fear-based you know there was a lot of that and um and then the the beauty of finding a little bit more softness in connection with friends connection with our found family connection with the people we like want once we have the 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 agency and the sort of the capability once we have all of that we find our people right and that's a beautiful thing and i think a crucial part of our mental health journeys yeah, yeah i definitely agree i think sometimes we underestimate the power in friendships mm -hmm. and community connections that we need i think even you and i this conversation i like to say every conversation or every interaction gives someone the opportunity to either heal or it hurts them and hopefully we have more healing interactions than hurtful ones. Yeah. How would you define, like, what would what are the sort of crucial components of a healing conversation? Yeah. Um, generally, it involves active listening. So active listening being um, eye contact. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a head nod. It's a smile, something that's reinforcing that I hear you, I see you. And sometimes it involves asking the person what they actually need from the interaction. Sometimes you want to be useful in an interaction. So we try to problem solve and give advice, though that essentially invalidates someone if that's not what they're looking for. They just want to be heard, seen, and understood. Mm -hmm. Yep. So well said. So well said. I, I have found that active listening in particular has been a crucial part of like building my capacity for empathy uh, in relation to my friends, in relation to my partner, in relation to the world, really. Um, listening being this useful skill that helps me investigate my own bias and assumptions about the world um, and and bring in more critical thinking and bring in more of the let's sit with this before I make a decision, right? Even. Um, and it's been so helpful just in my mental health, in how I show up in my activism, how I show up as a passionate, feely person. It's just, it's just been a crucial part of it. Yeah. And what you're referring to known is oftentimes in interactions we're not checking in with ourselves and not realizing intense emotions or difficult emotions that may be coming up like guilt and shame mm -hmm. in an interaction so we unintentionally do or say something that's hurtful to the other person and sometimes to ourselves in a dialogue yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah i mean I guess a crucial part of empathy or compassion is mindfulness around intent and impact, right? Yes. Yeah. Do you, I mean, being in, you know, being the founder of Melanated Women's Health, creating spaces for marginalized identities, uh, BIPOC, uh, et cetera, how do you sort of frame that? How do you talk about that particular piece? 
how do I talk about impact and what specifically? Just intent and impact and how we show up in the world. Because, you know, uh, right. So I could, as an example, intend to um, create a safe space, right? You know, maybe I intend to create a safe space. Here's actually a real life example. I, I lead like an ongoing emotional check-in series with uh, Feely Human. And before the first one, I, I started like investigating on like what what would safety mean to me known wells as a person right and i i think my initial inclination was like okay here are some ideas around safety and i would present them to the group right but then that would be like influencing them for example so so i took a step back and i instead of doing that i i just said let's collectively together as a group come up with uh, what our idea is collectively around safety, what that means. So the intent was to create a safe space, but like the impact could be that we could have uh, marginalized someone in the group. They, maybe someone didn't feel safe and they didn't tell me, right? So, and I wouldn't know that if they didn't tell me, right? So I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of all of it, but I'm also not a mind reader too, right? So that that piece of it is hard and and we have to be accountable to the impact of what that could be, you know? Well, thank you for sharing that. No, it gives me clarity yeah. because what I focus on is choice and it sounds essentially that is what you did as well. So the name Melanated Women's Health if we break the three parts down on the surface level, it may seem exclusionary mm -hmm. to some folks who may want to seek therapy where it's like, hmm, am I melanated? I don't identify on the gender binary, though I want some mental health services. What does that look like pursuing services through this group practice? So everyone who contacts me, whether by phone or by email, one of the very first thing I um, try to express is, do you have any background preferences for someone that you would like to work with? So immediately I'm sharing that you always have a choice within the practice or if within the practice I can't meet that preference, I have a network of colleagues that I can refer you to because my priority beyond business and the revenue aspect of it from a capitalist standpoint is that I want you to get the best service that you can, even if that is not within my practice. Mm -hmm. So I always offer choice for people who do not identify on the gender binary or they may not identify within the BIPOC community and they decide to enter the practice, especially if they're working with me individually, there's always several moments within our work where that comes up. What is this experience like for you? Mm -hmm. Working with someone that shares a different identity, whether it's because of gender, culture, race, socioeconomic background. So they're recognizing that the labor of the work isn't on them, mm. though there's a sharing aspect to mm. it that here is a relationship that you can use to work through some of those issues that you may be faced with outside of the therapy space. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I, you know, obviously uh, needs to be said the what I think is crucial and what is essential, and I'm so grateful you're creating that pocket of safety is this, I mean, you know this, the, from a cultural and just historical lens of uh, sort of serving or, how do I rephrase this? His, just the recognizing and being conscious of the historical abuses of black people in the medical space, right? And being conscious of that and creating a space for uh, both honoring that and recognizing that and being conscious of that, I think is so crucial. So thank you for doing that. I think it's, it's essential and needed. 
Um, and I, I, what is, what is, what, what fills my heart about that and what also breaks my heart about that is I know for me as a white cis person, uh, of, of immense privilege, uh, struggled deeply, hard to ask for help, had abusive parents that didn't feel safe. Right. And so when I finally found a therapist, you know, I was well into my late twenties. Right. And it took a long time because there was so much shame and guilt and, and, and that, that was all, um, you know, because I was sensitive and there was, there was a scary dad and, you know, things like that. But like, I think about, and my heart breaks for the, the gaslighting that happens in the medical community, the, just the historical abuses. It's, 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 it's awful and it's heinous. And I'm, I'm grateful that, that you through the lens of creating this space, you know, in a way are bringing light to it and are, are shining a light on it. Yeah. And thank you for recognizing that. I don't think many people on either sides, whether within the BIPOC community or in the white community are aware of some of the historical medical traumas that continue to be a barrier for psychological help seeking or accessing mental health resources that mm -hmm. does exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of maybe how you approach sort of like if someone comes to you and maybe has culturally felt that or, or has mistrusted the medical community, understandably how you approach that as a, as a healer, as a therapist, as someone who wants to help them, but also be mindful of that context with which they're coming in. Yeah, you start with um, validating that the mistrust that exists is normal and rational in that there were past experiences that it led to abuse and hurt. So I start there and then create the groundwork for what is within your control now. Mm. If you do, if someone shows up, to therapy for me, it means that they have overcome some barriers and that they have accessibility to cure, whether it's um, monetarily because of the income that they've not been able to amass or access to health insurance. So with that resource, what do they know, want it to look like in terms of making some kind of repair with their relationship to the healthcare system? Because mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of research shows that in the BIPOC community, you know, with Asian Americans, three times less likely than their white counterparts for seeking out services. And then obviously the Black community also has some reservations about seeking out healthcare. When you look at that just on a surface level, it looks like they don't want care. Mm -hmm. the, the issue is they're trying to protect themselves. And in that protecting themselves, it's a two-edged sword because their overall health gets compromised yeah. within the process. So it's first validating and then holding them accountable for what is within their control so they're not continuing to impair their wellness mm. and it removes shame and blame for some of the ailments or illnesses that they are enduring yeah i love that and i'd imagine a piece of it is like bringing light to part of the like yeah validating the the protection that they carried you know understandably mm -hmm. and then also helping them see that a little bit of that protection can be shed within the context of you serving them, right? Because you're you're maybe a safe space for them and they can shed a little bit of that so they can find healing or whatever they need. Yeah. Yeah. And I like your word choice of serving them or the phrasing mm. of it that you are right and that I am essentially just a conduit to their healing. I'm serving them. They're the expert essentially on their life. I'm helping them sort through and organize it mm. in a way that's most helpful for them. Yeah. I love that. 
uh, you're the conduit. Yeah, that's that's well said. Um, so, how did you get interested in this space, Nicola? Like, what what lights you up about serving as a therapist? So, myself, as the person therapist, gets light up from the fact that I say it all the time that therapists are unique in that. No two days are the same. No two therapy sessions, no two clients. And oftentimes clients don't know this, but there's a lot of education that they also give to the therapist. I mean, I'm working with scientists and teachers and people from different backgrounds professionally and then culturally, and that there's a lot of um, learning that happens with that. And I, I, don't know if I know of another field where people are exposed to that extent to different people so often. It's like if I have five clients that I see in a day, they're five different people from five different walks of life and backgrounds that it, it really energizes me. Mm-hmm. I relate to that and empathize with that. And what? when did this interest in this space uh, start for you? Yeah, so it was really meandering. In high school, I was positioned to really um, go into business. I did more economics, accounting, Mm -hmm. and business-centered courses. That's a track that I was on. And I guess it came full circle. Now I have a business. (laughs) Um, But towards the end of high school, I got introduced to sociology. And from there, I became just really interested in culture and people. And I had to do some soft persuading of the adults who are making choices about my education. Well, what would this look like um, with earning a living? Mm-hmm. In Jamaica, you can't be a sociologist. So what would this look like? So I managed to maneuver to say, well, I'll do a minor in economics and I'll do psychology as the major. Maybe something can come mm-hmm. off that. Everyone hires psych majors, really, because mm-hmm. you have those people skills. Ended up dropping the um, minor in economics and became really focused on psychology as I started to develop my own identity as a young person and then looking culturally on what was happening in that in Jamaica, mental health is really stigmatized and there's not a lot of resources Mm. that are accessible to that. And at the time I had bold ambitions of, well, I could help to fill that gap in the system by normalizing or putting a face to that. Mm -hmm. So that in a nutshell is how my interest in the work started recently even I had some family members like so when are you going to go into a different field like <sighs> law or traditional business and I'm like I have a business <laughs> what are you talking like, about like I found it this is the space I love <laughs> yes yes and it's doing well what yeah. but I think they're slowly coming around to some acceptance and grief of mm. what they thought would have been Hmm. Yes, the expectations we have of people. Uh, I love that. Do you culturally in Jamaica? Is it? Are we making progress there from a mental health stigma perspective? Very slowly, the progress is being made, and I think it's coming from people who are within my generation. Mm-hmm. So thirties, mid to late 30s that are trying to make an impact because these are also the people who have maybe left the island and they've gone back or they're really in touch culturally even with some narratives within or music Mm -hmm. that impairs Mm -hmm. mental health and other issues. I think slowly there is a change, but it's not as fast as anyone would like it to be. Yeah. Why do you suppose it is not as fast comparatively to other places? So resources. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the issues that Jamaica is grappling with, for example, like any developing nation is crime and violence or opportunities for young people 
So monetarily, resources are going to those social issues first. Right, right. While then trying to combat other social issues, such as mm. mental health. Mm. Mm. Do you, I know you're in Philadelphia area now. Do you mm. have aspirations to go back to Jamaica or do something big there in terms of your, your place as a therapist? I tell everyone I meet, Jamaica is where I'm retiring. I'm a proud Jamaican. Um, even in grad school, my research was done with um, done on the island as well as in America. So it focused on nice. cultural differences with psychological help seekers, Americans versus Jamaicans. And I look back and think a part of that thesis in grad school is essentially what my entire practice now is based on because all of the data and the findings of that research is essentially what I've built my business on. Mm. So it's always the plan to go back and eventually do what I'm doing here, there. That's exciting. I've never been I'll to actually Jamaica. be there. I'll actually be there in two weeks. Oh, amazing. So, yeah. I, I've always wanted to visit. I've never done it. Um, I gotta, I gotta do that. I gotta do that some one of these days. <laughs> it will be well worth it. Yes, yes. So I've heard. So I've heard. Um, so you talk about Nicola. You talk about uh, what lights you up in terms of meeting all types of people from all types of backgrounds, and I love that too. And and this podcast is like a space that I can do that, which feels super. I feel very lucky in that, um, and what a word you use i think on your website is intersectionality and how that influences how we engage with the world right can you talk a little bit about the importance of thinking about that and in terms of just like even training our hearts and our brains to just pay attention to that more and to see value in that yeah to answer the question it would be starting with giving information and what intersectionality is i think sometimes make the assumption that everyone in podcast land knows the terminology Fair. and understand what we're talking about so um intersectionality being essentially the crossroads of or identity that any given person has a different aspect of their selves that influences their day-to-day -day experiences and every interaction. So for me, I don't necessarily get to choose if I'm showing up as an immigrant, a Jamaican specifically, as a Black person, as a woman, as a cis individual, as a you know, like I don't necessarily get to choose each of those and someone else may also have a different crossroads of their identity that they show up with that influences their interactions. And I think if we're not mindful of that, so if I'm showing up to in an interaction and not mindful of ableism and some of the ways that I'm able-bodied, then I may cause hurt to someone that doesn't share that identity. So I think yeah. we always have to be mindful of the intersections of our own identity to then look at how is it impacting an interaction that we have with someone else who may not share a similar identity or identities. Yeah. Yeah. It what I love that. And what I what I have sort of learned and am always learning in my own mental health and in my empathy work is that that bringing sort of mindfulness and awareness around that intersectionality really like deepens our connection to ourselves and our communities and, and, and helps us, I think more positively enrich and impact our communities and the people we love uh, because we are at the base level, just, cognitively and emotionally getting used to nuance and curiosity right um and and what i said before about assumptions and bias and and being just 
aware of that stuff as we operate in the world. Just like, I mean, a perfect example is like, I'm showing up here uh, with you. I am bringing I'm bringing awareness about your intersectionality, and I'm 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 aware of that. I'm aware of how you show up in the world. I'm not, I'm I'm not I'm not assuming anything. I want to meet you where you're at because you're a human and you deserve that. And um, and I don't want to assume. I don't want to like bring in my own bias because I want to give you the space for you to say and be who you are in your wholeness and all of it because it's all beautiful and matters and it's valid. Um, and I think that that's hard and it's amazing at the same time. Right. Yeah. And what the hard part is that human interactions are difficult. The thing that our brain tries to do because we're constantly taking in new information, our brain tries to do shortcuts to make mm, snap mm-hmm. judgments and conclusions because it can't, always be processing in that fast speed with new information that it's taking in however it's important for us to recognize that to then slow down the process to Mm. ensure that we're not using that shortcut to make a judgment that can be harmful Mm -hmm. to someone yeah what's a type of shortcut like is it i don't know uh making a stereotype for example is that would that be a shortcut yeah Yeah, so an implicit bias is a shortcut, Mm -hmm. a stereotype, that's a shortcut. So if I show up to a space and I say, well, there's a bunch of white dudes in here and they're all going to engage in some toxic masculinity stuff towards me, my brain is making a shortcut. Mm -hmm. So it's important for me to check in like, all right, maybe or maybe not. Let's look out for cues that may support that or cues that will show that even though this is the identity that I'm seeing, these may be some emotionally intelligent and self-aware people in the space. Yeah. Uh, Great example. I would also say, and I know you're aware of this, but for the listeners is like in that example too, there is sometimes an important sort of protection too, right? As a black woman showing up in a space of white dudes, Mm -hmm. like there's, there's a piece of your intersectionality that needs to maybe be protected because of past experiences. Right. Um, I have a bias sometimes toward, and I'm fully aware of it cognitively, but like I see the, the dude in the big truck and I'm like, he's a trumper or whatever like i just make assumptions because like that's my armor or whatever but i know that's may it could be true but it's not maybe fair uh sometimes too um it's all nuanced and messy uh but two we have to protect ourselves and we have to be mindful of our triggers and you know what we've carried and all of that stuff yeah yeah, and you said um, it's a protective mechanism. That's exactly what the shortcut is. Because if you mm-hmm. think about it, otherwise our brain fries mm-hmm. and or um, processing system just turns off because mm-hmm. it's the cognitive overload. Mm-hmm. So that's what our brain is doing, though. It's not necessarily right. Our brain is just working on its natural survival skills yeah. from a biological standpoint. Yeah, yeah. So, I've spoken to a lot of therapists on this show, Nicola, and a lot of therapists like yourself who are on social media, right? Who are like publicly sort of uh, doing, not doing therapy on Instagram, obviously, but but like publicly a therapist on Instagram, um, but not doing therapy on Instagram, (laughs) Um, how publicly giving information publicly giving information thank (laughs) you yes um it's how do you navigate that is it tricky is it is it um does it bring up anxiety in you like how has that been for you so early on it was anxiety provoking in that not only am i a therapist as my professional identity and there are some 
ethical rules and laws that we have to follow with confidentiality. Personally, I'm a very private person, so there is a, that aspect to, to reconcile with wanting to put information out there while also wanting to safeguard my privacy. And then the third piece of wanting to ensure that I'm always acting in a way that my licensing board Mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. be supportive of so initially when i started putting content out on instagram i didn't even have my image online there wasn't a headshot n- never anything mm. i'm not even sure if i used my own like my own voice mm-hmm. in the content i can't remember but i was really hiding mm-hmm. behind my post and over time i thought well these are my own insecurities that I need to work on. Otherwise, it's doing an injustice to the audience that I want to serve. So then I started connecting with other therapists online, getting a feel for how they're navigating um, these nuanced issues within the field. And then from there, I made a decision on what are some things that I will essentially always keep a private online given the potential for existing or past clients or even potential future clients to be exposed to this content. So those were decisions that I made really early on. And then I made a secondary decision on what is the voice that I will put out there. So it's always person-centered. It's not necessarily my opinions that I'm sharing. It's coming from my professional identity. Mm-hmm. As a therapist, so I made those decisions. And then more recently, I don't know why, but um, more recently, existing clients have started to find me on social media. So those conversations are entering the therapy room about what is that like for mm-hmm. them, what our relationship will be online, that with respecting the work and respecting confidentiality. It's not that I'm disregarding you if you engage with something online, but I can't whether respond to a comment or say something there because immediately I have now breached or confidentiality mm-hmm. by sharing that. So letting them understand they always have the choice, but if it's something that they really want to process in a session, then that's where it ought to be done and not publicly. Right. Online. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. It's it's interesting. And it's such a, you know, it's just such a new piece of information or a new way of doing things that, that yeah. therapists are having to contend with a little bit. And I, 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 like, as someone who loves therapy, has been in therapy, you know, loves all my therapist friends, appreciate, like, I just appreciate the information, right, being shared, right? And I, I, I get a lot of value out of it. And yeah, I see the, the, the ethical piece, the private piece, like, that seems like a good, like, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you have, like, safe protections, and you have some good rules around that to protect yourself. Um, that feels important, especially when we're dealing with the internet and in all of its uh, wonder and awfulness. <laughs> yeah, and what the internet is like twenty something years old, so yeah. not necessarily that old. I when I started grad school in two thousand and nine, I remember even then, telehealth or just technology within mm-hmm. the therapy space it was scoffed at. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that was validated, and here comes COVID. And we're seeing how not only technology, but the telehealth space has really filled a service gap Mm -hmm. within the field. So things are changing. And I think as therapists, we have to embrace it and start looking at what are the best practices as we incorporate it into the work. Because I even have clients who are therapists who see me for therapy. And even some of those clients, they'll say, I saw this TikTok thing from another therapist that resonated with me and I want us to process that Mm. today. So I think it can be helpful if we're putting safeguards in place. Yes, absolutely. The the other like maybe harder piece of it is that I've been witness to is 
you know, not yourself, not the people I know, Lisa Oliveira, Danae Selkin, Vanessa Bennett, you know, but there are like some sort of therapy adjacent spaces on Instagram, for example, that feel like, hmm, uh, there might be some ethical boundaries being crossed here. Um, how do you, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're aware of some of this stuff that happens. How do you, how do you think about that? Do you think about it? I do think about it. And I think maybe some of the therapy adjacent spaces that you're talking about, it's people who are mental health advocates and not necessarily mental health professionals in that they've been trained in the field. It's that they've similar to you, they've had some exposure and they see how life-changing it was for them and they want to put the information out there or normalize that. And when I think about it, something that I always hope and desire that happens with the advocates because I think there is a space for them and very beneficial. They're kind of like the billboards <laughs> for therapy. So what we say there are the ads that says, hey, therapy is helpful. I think you should engage with it. I think it's important that they are transparent in sharing that. Yeah. That yeah. this is my background. I'm not a professional. If something resonates, here are resources mm -hmm. that you can access to then get professional help. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And I, as someone who has, yeah, tons of lived experience at the same time, I'm not a professional, right? I always be very clear about that. I, what I do say is I'm, I'm a silly boy with lots of lived experience. That's kind of what I say. And here are some wonderful resources like Nicola, for example, right? Um, and I think you're right. I think we need all types too, right? Because as much as I have benefited from therapy, I also understand that therapy might not be for everyone. It might not be the, the way in which they're going to learn about themselves. They might need to start with a few friends who have been through therapy or have are further down the line in their mental health journey, right? Uh, it might be a podcast. It might be whatever it may be. And therapy is obviously a crucial part of mental health in general. And it's not for everyone, right? Yeah. That removes the veil of it's taboo or it helps with the mistrust mm -hmm. that yeah, it's all fine and well. People talk about this online, but here's a person that you know within your circle who has had this experience mm -hmm. and yeah. you've been witness to or a recipient of some of the changes in their life. So that's where the advocates, I think, comes in where they can be helpful. They could be the first step on someone else's journey but not where it ends in that well this person is an advocate they've been to therapy and they give me all the information that's not helpful and the other thing too i would hope that advocates online are aware of this that not wanting to essentially open themselves up and open other people up to intense emotions and feelings without being able to then contain it mm -hmm. so they're not leaving people raw and exposed that's a unique skill that a professional would have to help someone deal with something, process something that's emotionally distressing, but also help them to contain it, to carry on in their days. It's not following them for days and disrupting their daily life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Nicola, what, what would you say to someone who is listening to this now and you know, wants to maybe start therapy, but is maybe a little afraid or has some anxiety, some concerns, like what would you say to that person? I mean, obviously, I, would... I mean, obviously understanding that like there's so much internet and all the intersectionality conversation, like that's, that's part of this, but you know, this is just a general person, I guess. Yeah. So general person, I would say, Use your little smartphone or computer, whatever gadget you're listening to this on. So just Google therapist in your area. You don't have to call. That can be scary because if they answer the phone and you're like, uh, what do I say? I was just testing this out. Is to maybe send an email 
every therapist that I know, and it's best practice in the field, that we offer what's called a free consultation phone call. And in that free consultation phone call, you don't pay for it. You don't have to make any commitments. It's essentially where you get to ask this person some questions about the process. See if they could or couldn't be helpful. See if they could refer you to someone else. This week, most of my consultation calls were referring people elsewhere. It's, you know, I think I know someone who may be a better fit for you, whether it's because of scheduling needs, insurance, or um, just a thing that you are sharing with me. I think this person is so skilled and talented in this work that I think you should reach out to them. If they don't have something, maybe you can follow up. So even within that, that the consultation call is where the healing starts. Because you have a therapist that's validating what you're going through and providing information. And it's free. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's super important. That was helpful for me the first time I I did it because uh, it's it is nerve wracking, right? It's like mm-hmm. it's at you know it's for some it's admitting that like you need help and that's vulnerable and and sometimes seen as weakness, quote unquote, right? And so having the option to have a free conversation just to to gauge things is super important. I think, yeah, yeah, and I think sometimes consultation calls catch people off guard and by people i mean the potential client that's making the call off guard like they get emotional on mm-hmm. the call and again a therapist is skilled to be able to help you through whatever emotions comes up in that 10 to 15 minutes phone call so it's yeah. not following you throughout your day love it love it well nicola let's transition out of this and talk about we always end the show talking about our empathy heroes so people in our lives they could be characters from stories we love or movies Mm -hmm. we love i will go first to give you a moment to reflect on your empathy hero my empathy hero this week is an organization called the global empowerment mission they're at globalempowermentmission.org uh, they are on the ground in Poland and Ukraine helping uh, refugees, helping um, mothers and kids uh, and students uh, in in those areas. Um, I recently donated to them. It's a great organization. I learned about them through my friend Emily McDowell. Uh, they're on the ground doing wonderful work. Um, so they're my empathy heroes this week. The email or the uh, email, or sorry, the, the, the web address is globalempowermentmission.org, and I'll make sure to include that in the show notes for this episode. Nicola, how about you? Who's your empathy hero this week? I would say my empathy hero is a biological aunt. I, as you were talking, I was reflecting on a statement that she always says it's at the core of it, everyone wants to be heard and understood. And I always keep that statement that she just casually said to me when I was younger at the forefront of my mind, because again, this is coming from someone that grew up in a country and in a family system that's not psychologically minded. And her, even her education ended in high school. Mm. And for her to have that level of insight. And that's essentially how she has always witnessed her living her life in a very empathetic way. That at the core of it, everyone wants to be heard, seen, and understood. So Mm. that is my empathy hero. Mm. It's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, so important. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Gives me goosebumps. Um, Thank you. So, Nicola, where can the feely humans out there connect with you and learn more about the work you're doing? So they can connect with me at Melanated Women's Health on any social media platform or www.melanatedwomenshealth.com. Amazing. Well, listeners, those links will be in the show notes for this episode at feelyhuman.co. Nicola, thank you. This has been lovely. I really appreciate you. 
Thank you for the honor of speaking to the Feely humans out there. (laughs) You're very welcome. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot, we have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Empathy.